Roger. This is how it's going to start. Hey, everybody. It's me, Donnie Jeffcoat, your preliminary host for the podcast. I'd like you to relax, take a seat, and someone will be with you shortly. In the meantime, I'd like to introduce you to this, the Executive Buffet, the only place where Daddy's Big Red Truck takes a big, long stop and lets off anybody with a cool, funky lifestyle. If you want more special tastes, Check us out on the Patreon website at patreon.com slash live to tape. There's all kinds of goodies there, only for Patreons. Now, without further ado, I want to let you take a minute just to figure out what exactly is going on right now. Thanks for being here. We love you. And just take a seat, okay, honey? Hey, everybody. It's me. Hey, it's that guy who usually hosts it. He's here right now. It's me. Hey, this is Johnny, also known as uh, Jason, also known as Benji, also known as uh, the old Wishbone Factory. Uh, we're about to get started here on a wonderful new episode of Live to Tape. This is uh, one of my favorite episodes I've recorded in a long time, actually. it's just, I think this is probably going to be a repeat listener for all of you out there. This is uh, My guest is an entomologist named Adam Lazarus, and he's an ant expert. What's an ant? It's a type of an insect. And there's all kinds of stuff I want to say, but it's so technical that I've forgotten what it is. So without saying anything else other than thank you for being here and please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, here it is, my wonderful insect-filled discussion with Adam Lazarus. Adam Lazarus, welcome to Live to Tape. Thank you so much. It is really good to be here. Thanks for asking me to come by. So, what do you you consider yourself an, an ant biologist, or what is exactly your you're an arthropod uh, arthropod freak, or <laughs> exactly? I would say so. So the um, the I've been into bugs pretty right. much my whole life. My mom says, and I know moms have a tendency to say things like this, but she says that uh, from from infancy I was following <laughs> insects with my eyes, right, and. Uh, it quickly became uh, ants that were sort of the favorites. So I have lots of, I got, I've got a bug zoo at home, so I've got a lot of different bugs that I love. Well, you brought a miniature bug zoo over here. I did. Which I want to talk about, but maybe we'll save that for a second later after. Absolutely. So you grew up just like being super interested in, in, uh, in ants. Super interested in ants, yes. Which, by the way, the, the study of ants is called myrmecology, M-Y-R-M-E-C-ology, myrmecology. Where does that come from? Um, it comes from, I can never remember, formica and myrmica both mean ant. One is Greek, one is Latin. Uh, I can never remember which one is which. Okay. Myrmica, that's interesting. I didn't, I've never heard that, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah ants are interesting because there's, so, there's just so many ants. Like I watched your, uh, your TED, TEDx talk, is that right? Uh-huh. 
It's so it's so interesting, man. I just was like one of, the, one of the best ones I've ever seen. Oh, thank you so much. It's That's so really great. wonderful to hear. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just so much stuff. I, I have so many questions for you. I don't even know where to start, but I, I just want to keep going with your background. Okay, okay. Well, perhaps the good news is that I can talk about ants until it's socially awkward. So, like, <laughs> when you uh, invited me to come talk about right. ants today, you made my day. Oh, cool, so, man. Happy to get to all of them if there's time. Nice. Um, yeah, I'd say, so maybe what got me interested in ants? Um, I spent a lot of time, I was fortunate enough to grow up in an area where there was plenty of place to explore mm -hmm. in New England. And I started finding ants everywhere. And uh, they were different kinds. I could see right away that there were sort of different ants adapted to different types of environments. Um, some I knew I would only find in certain places. Some had giant colonies. Some had tiny colonies. Um, some I didn't even know were ants at the time because ants can be so uh, morphologically uh, distinct from one another. Wow. Um, and I guess uh, maybe what sort of initially attracted me to them is uh, just how many different strategies they were using to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, some ants... Um, were going out and capturing insects for food. Others were culturing aphids and uh, milking them for, for uh, sweet secretions and right. using that as sort of a, the, the bulk of their food. And then when I got older and started studying ants more, um, I sort of, it seemed to me like there were nothing that, uh, there was nothing that uh, humans did for survival and to flourish that ants didn't also do. And probably uh, better. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, they've had a lot more experience yeah. uh, generating heat, generating coolness, uh, growing crops, raising other animals for food. Um, but then as I got kind of started studying them more in depth and I used to be uh, an ant biologist and uh, studied them from the uh, molecular level mm -hmm. and started developing this hypothesis that uh, there are analogs. We, we tend to think of ants as being um, really social and mm -hmm. um, almost altruistic. Right. Um, but in fact, there are zillions of ants. There's, we don't know exactly how many ant species there are, but we think it may be upwards of around 20,000. Um, and within that number of ants, we, can find, uh, we find lots of ants that cooperate, um, but we also find ants that... Uh, are playing tricks on one another, subverting one another, trying to avoid doing work. And it kind of seems like uh, we can find analogs in the ant world for any of the ways that we govern ourselves or run a business or use resources. And sometimes it's hard to see a pattern mm -hmm. when you are a piece of that pattern. But if you can kind of look at your same pattern in miniature, I think it can give you some really good predictive insight about how well your particular strategy is going to work. That's really interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, because you, like, you get to look at something that has an analog to what you're doing, and it's like you get to study it from the you – you get to have this helicopter view of it as opposed to being inside of it. Right, right. Yeah, I remember when I first saw some of those David Attenborough nature pieces, how you see some of these insects that are doing stuff that's so, so bizarre. Their behavior is so – weird it kind of like oh there's nothing you can do as a human there's nothing you can possibly do that's actually weird because there's some sort of 
life form exists in the planet that's doing the exact thing, and that's what they do normally. <laughs> there's almost nothing you can possibly – there's no, like, sexual proclivity you can have that's weird because there's something that's like, oh, that's all I do is this super weird-ass shit. <laughs> it's like – it's so interesting. Absolutely. One, one of my favorites there, it's called uh, – what's it called? Uh, traumatic insemination, I think. Traumatic something. Mm -hmm. um, bed bugs, the male bed bug, uh, actually pierces a hole through the female in order to mate with her. She doesn't have an opening Jesus. to receive the penis. He punches a hole through a part of her body in order to uh, insert the semen. So, As if you couldn't hate bed bugs anymore. <laughs> now it's like, okay, now maybe that's why we hate them so much. It's like we just know there's like a, something in your body that tells you these things are fucking disgusting. <laughs> They're like... Oh my god! Like battle rapists of the of the <laughs> bug world, are but are bed bugs technically ants? No, bed bugs um, are actually somewhat related to aphids, which many ants uh, okay. maintain. But bed bugs are from a a much different lineage of insects. So, what makes an ant an ant? Hmm. Great question. Let's see. Because they are arthropods, right? They are arthropods. Okay. Correct. As are. Um, uh, pill bugs, crabs, lobsters, right? Um, spiders? spiders, spiders, arthropods. Okay. Yep. That's a huge family. Or centipedes, millipedes. It's um. Let's see. Class kingdom. Yeah. That, that was phylum. I believe phylum, it's a okay. phylum. The arthropods. It was, it's, it's kingdom. Kinky people call out for great sex. That's what I learned in high school. Nice. Um, mine was killing plants causes over flooding in general situations. <laughs> <laughs> that's so much better. It's so much like that's true though. That's an actual thing. Is that killing plants does cause overflooding and what did you what was it again? Killing in general situations. In general situations. Wow, you're just talking about erosion. That's yeah. funny. In in uh, junior high school, our um, science teacher had us come up with mnemonics to remember that order. Uh -huh. And you know now I teach science as well, and I have my students do that as well. It's one of the only things I remember from school. That's good. It's definitely better than kinky people cry out for great sex because it's like, well, I think it's more of a high school thing. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> we can make it sexy. That's funny. Yeah, so arthropods are this massive phylum, huh? Yes, I believe Is phylum, it the biggest yeah. one? It's probably the biggest one, isn't it? Because um, ants are... It's probably the biggest phylum within the animal kingdom. Okay. Um, and then ants themselves uh, are an incredibly huge order okay. of insects. So... Um, What's the, the name of the order? The order is Hymenoptera. Hymenoptera. Um, if you take a look, if you take a look at uh, our model right there, right, um, which you may recognize since you uh, acted alongside that ant in. Oh yeah, that's right. Ant Man. That's true. Um, these <laughs> ants are called Hymenoptera, which means membrane winged. Okay, this um, one on the top. This model. On the on that's the model right okay. there, um, and they. They are in the same order as uh, wasps and bees. And in fact, uh, wasps and, I'm sorry, bees and ants evolved from wasps. Yeah, I've, I learned that uh, recently, and I just still, seems, it seems so incredible, the idea that you would, like, give up flying. Like, you would be like, oh, I'm, we don't want to fly anymore. Like, you have the gift of flight. You'd be like, we're going to stay on the ground. It's so crazy to me that, that that's happened, right? That's what you're saying, right? That they've come from a flying insect to becoming a terrestrial insect? That's correct. God, that's crazy. Um, though there are certain forms of ants that do fly. Right. Um, the, 
the sexual forms, if you will, the reproductive forms. So um, almost all ants are female. And, really? Uh, yes. Like what percentage? So all worker ants are female. Okay. Um, queens are, of course, female. Uh-huh. And males are just made for mating. Wow. Um, in almost every single instance of ants and, um, and other hymenopterans. And after they mate, they die. Jesus. They, they have almost no role in an ant society other than to be a giant, uh, uh, you know, flying turkey baser full of sperm <laughs> to give to the female. And then right. that's it. That's crazy. I had no idea. So it's like 90, 90% female, 95% female usually? I, I don't know, um, but I'm guessing it's um, well over 99%. Jesus, that's crazy, man. <laughs> wow. That's um, interesting. The ant life cycle is actually a pretty neat thing. Okay. So, um, again, with all the different species of ants, there are many different uh, modes of reproduction that ants have. But sort of the typical, the standard, uh, the basic ant reproductive cycle is, is kind of thus. So a colony, once it gets to be a certain size mm-hmm. of uh, producing workers who go out and get food and bring it in, bring in resources, the colony expands, they make more workers. Um, the queen is well fed, she's pumping out tons of eggs. Once they reach a certain sort of... Um, this is called the ergonomic stage, right. um, where they're just focused on, on building up and making more ants. And then once they reach a certain size, which for some ants can be millions mm-hmm. um, and for other ants can be dozens, wow. um, they start devoting some of these incoming resources to making reproductives. So some of these are eggs that uh, could hatch into workers, but they're sort of uh, subjected to different pheromones, maybe they're fed more. Some have a genetic uh, component as well that um, makes them more predisposed to become queens. Okay. Uh, and those are raised up. They tend to be larger than the worker ants. And I, I brought a couple queens today that we really? can take a look at wow. if you want. And uh, eventually those queens are born uh, with wings. So these are virgin queens hanging out in the nest born with wings um and typically at a similar time to when they're making uh these queens uh the queen will lay uh the queen mother will lay some unfertilized eggs and where whereas in uh, many species an unfertilized egg results in uh you know no offspring Mm -hmm. unfertilized eggs in hymenopterans results in a male oh wow okay so Um, they're default they're men until they're women until they're made into women. So it's like if an egg is unfertilized, it is a male. It will become a male. That's correct. Wow. That's correct. And so these males will eventually be born um, alongside the queens, and they also have wings. Wow. And at a certain time of the year, let's, let's use these carpenter ants as, as an example. At a certain time of the year that we don't exactly know how the ants determine, Mm-hmm. All the carpenter ant colonies uh, within a given geographical area will kind of force their winged reproductive ants out of the nest at the same time. Wow. And uh, these, these ants, they've been in the colony for months, fattening up on uh, uh, fat and protein, just ready for this one moment. Once these ants uh, experience the 
external temperatures, uh, the, the sunlight, if it's a diurnal ant, um, the fresh air, the breeze, this triggers them to fly. Wow. And then once they take off into the air, that's when they mate. So despite all the ants that we've all seen all over the place, very few people have ever actually seen ants mate. And it's... Um, Is it because they're mating in the air? Because they're, they're mating, mating because they're mating in the air. Wow. Um, and only um, in response to a certain set of conditions that we Jesus. are largely completely incapable of replicating. So we can take, uh, we can take virgin queens and virgin males mm -hmm. and put them in a giant screened-in cage. We can play Barry White. We can do it at the right time of year. All these things that we think will encourage them to mate. But you just and can't. They just sit there looking kind of depressed like maybe a, you know, a, a sixth-grade school dance or something wow. like that. Wow. Um, but anyhow, once they mate, the male dies. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, and the queen, um, she may mate with one male or several males, as a friend said, depending upon what sorority she was in. <laughs> um, she s lands. Uh, sometimes she will mate on the ground, but usually in the air. She lands. She tears off her wings, never to fly How again. How does she tear them off? With, like, her legs or with her mandibles? She, uh, with her legs, she kind of shrugs her shoulders okay. back and forth, and you see her kind of uh, dragging her legs over the wings. But they're the designed to come off. This is like a thing. They're designed okay. to come off. Um, and, in fact, that's one way that one can distinguish a queen uh, from workers, especially in species where queens and workers are similarly sized, right. is that the queen has little scars mm -hmm. from where the wings used to be. Wow. Um, then what she does she goes and uh, she excavates a cell in her medium of choice. So if it's a carpenter ant, it, it uh, might be wood. So she's alone at this point. She's alone okay. at this point. And in fact, she has to um, undergo an incredible gauntlet of things mm -hmm. out to get her. So um, even, even uh, the mother nest, if they come across a mated queen from their own nest, uh, workers will try to kill her and dismantle her. Really? Any Doesn't she give off some sort of a, a scent that lets them know that that's, she's from them or no? Yes, but she also gives off a scent that lets them know that she is a, a queen and she's kind of just flipped from being a sister to being competition. Really? Okay. And so many, many ants have this almost sort of like are almost, it seems like hardwired to if they come across a queen ant to try to attack it and kill wow. it. Uh, there are many predators that, are, that know when these uh, eruptions of winged ants are coming. And in some cases, the, there are so many winged ants that you can actually smell the sex pheromones in the Jesus. air. Jesus, what does it smell like? Uh, the one that I've smelled are, are uh, the, the harvester ants of the southwest. And it had a sort of a kind of a lemony okay. sort of smell to it. Those are big ants, right? Yeah, they're some of the biggest okay. ants around here. So I know a little bit about, now I don't I know hardly anything about the name, but the Florida harvester ant, or I think it's something like that. There's one that's um, in the south, because I went to Florida State University, and there was, a, um, there was an ant biologist there who studied um, the harvester ants. He used to pour, used to cast their nests, and they were these massive, really deep nests that would have all these chambers and stuff like that. And I was like, well, those are, must be pretty big ants. Was <laughs> that uh, Walter Chinkle? Walter Chinkle! Yes. <laughs> you know Walter? I, I've, um, yes. Okay. I, I don't know if he'd remember me, but, uh, you know, when, when you're a young kid, you, you have your people that you look up to, and uh, 
That's so funny, man. I was about to bring up his name, but I was like, I can't, I don't know. I didn't know. I just didn't know. I interviewed him years ago when I was in college to do a little piece on fire ants. Uh-huh. Because he was part of the, uh, the far, they had called themselves farts, fire ant research team. <laughs> Sorry, I'm choking right now. Um, yeah, I interviewed him. Very serious guy <coughs> in a good way. But he was like, uh, he was right before he was about to start casting with aluminum. He showed me his setup. He had, like, he had a scuba tank that he cut the head off and a bunch of aluminum, uh, like, you know, aluminum filings he was going to use to, because if he initially started doing it with, um, with plaster of Paris, but he said it was too delicate to extract it, to excavate it. So he thought of this idea to melt that aluminum and pour it in the, pour it in these, uh, these nests, these abandoned nests. And, um, I w- yeah, I don't, I haven't checked back in a long time, but I mean, that's so funny. You, so you would follow him through like scientific pub- publications or stuff like that? Him and a bunch of others. I okay. looked up to a lot of uh, That's ant cool. people when I was a younger kid. That's so funny, <laughs> man. Wow, yeah. But, yes, that's Walter Chinkle at Florida State University, yeah. So you're saying about the, how these, these large, you smell these, uh, these pheromones from these winged queens that are out and how they're, and they give that scent off and that, alert, that can alert certain predators that know about them. That's probably just one of several cues, but that mm-hmm. seems to be an obvious one. Yeah. And all these predators come. Spiders, birds, mammals, you name it. And uh, these queens, which have been getting jam-packed full of uh, fat and protein for months. Oh, they're tasty. Tasty. They're a great resource. Uh, So the queen has to evade all that. Mm -hmm. Then she has to go and uh, excavate a cell somewhere and seal herself off. And then she lays eggs. And then she starts metabolizing her own body. Wow. Um, Including the muscles that used to power the wings, those get metabolized. All this uh, fat and protein starts to get metabolized, and uh, she regurgitates this to feed her small clutch of developing eggs. So ants um, undergo complete metamorphosis, just like a a butterfly does. Um, And so the eggs hatch into these uh, grub-like larvae. Okay. Um, which are basically just bags with mouths. Is that a pupa or no? That that comes next. Okay. So uh, when the larva gets big enough, it molts into a pupa, and in some cases the larva spins a silken cocoon. Right. First, in other cases, it just molts into the pupa, and this looks sort of like a a, a white ant in a fetal position. Okay. And uh, gradually, this ant um, starts to uh, sclerotize or harden. And starts to uh, develop its pigmentation, the eyes first, right. usually. And um, this process takes uh, two months or more. Wow. And so the queen doesn't eat anything during that time, mm-hmm. uh, except, uh, and gets close to death. Um, she's close to starving to death by the time her first uh, worker ants are born. Um, she has to cannibalize some of them in order to get enough energy for herself and feed the others. Jesus. Um, and she's also extremely susceptible to, um, in addition to predators, uh, diseases, perhaps because she has a weakened mm-hmm. body. Usually ants are incredibly resistant to disease. Right. But so um, if a queen is actually successful in uh, starting a colony, and uh, from studies I've looked at where significantly fewer than 1% of them are, 
Then, wow, that's, um, that's pretty. That's not very good odds. Not very good odds at all. Yeah. Um, but if she is successful in doing that, um, she can live for several decades, um, and have enough. What? Yep, and that's have a enough. Long time. I don't know. Ants live that long. Most of them don't, but a successful queen can. Decades. And uh, a lot of times, uh, what what ends a colony is not the queen's age, mm-hmm. uh, but the fact that she seems to run out of sperm. So that one day of mating, uh-huh. um, and the sperm she gets from that one day of mating gets stored in an organ, organ called a spermatheca. What the heck? And uh, it will last the life of the colony. That's crazy. One time, and it lasts for it was about possibly 30 years. Possibly 30 years, that's, that's right. That's crazy. Crazy! That's wow. I've never heard that before. Oh my god, that's so weird. That's <laughs> so bizarre. Is it only ants that do that? No, there are a lot of um, arthropods that do that. Okay. I don't know about um, other animals, but it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of other animals do it well as well. Uh, a black widow, for example. Really? After she mates, she can store sperm um, for a long time and uh, won't lay eggs and make an egg sac until she. The, the conditions are right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had two scorpions in the classroom that uh, I had for years and thought they were male. I didn't know too much about uh, scorpion um, morphology. Right. And then um, both of them, uh, almost right one after the other, all of a sudden laid eggs, and we, all of a sudden we had dozens of scorpions in the classroom. Holy shit, you're lucky. <laughs> I know, so lucky. Isn't it funny how much... Scorpions and spiders are maligned, but ants somehow have like escaped that. You know what I mean? It's interesting to me because I, I like spiders a lot. I guess I, I, I guess you could say I'm slightly more interested in spiders just because no real, no real reason. I just have always kind of I think I you know I think I probably like spiders a lot because people hate them. It's not like that thing where like you want to like the thing that people hate because uh-huh. it's like you're almost being a contrarian. Because <laughs> like, I, I mean I like I like sharks a lot. I think anything that's sort of supposed to be dangerous. I like because I'm like, it's not really that dangerous. You're just making out to be dangerous because you think it's creepy or whatever, you know. But there's something about spiders where people just fucking hate spiders so much. It drives me wild. But I feel like ants have this thing where they've somehow, well, a lot of times ants aren't that different than spiders. I mean, they're obviously very different. But I mean, in terms of like, generally speaking, but they have such a different attitude like to humans than uh, spiders do. It's true. Um, it's interesting that you think about that because I do too. And two of our commonest uh, phobias are spiders and snakes. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if somewhere in our ancient history, enough people put their hands into a dark crevice and got bitten by something painful or deadly. That I wonder if that got written into our DNA just a little. It's got to be, right? Because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. Because, I mean, snakes are probably the most dangerous thing like don't they kill i mean if you don't want to talk about like um like microbiology but like snakes are they kill the most people right like in the world in terms of like animals no i think they're the most dangerous animal like if you look at india and and africa like like those areas and those rural areas they have a lot of um snake bites because people die because they can't can't get to they can't be um they can't get to like whatever medical stuff that will save their life Mm-hmm. But otherwise, there's nothing else as dangerous, is there? I mean, that, that I could definitely see that being the case with yeah. snakes, especially in terms of just 
administering venom or something like yeah. that. But but if we start to look at things like tsetse flies, which can right. transmit African sleeping sickness, right. or uh, those way more dangerous mosquitoes, which can transmit malaria. a host of diseases yeah. such as malaria. I think they may sort of take the cake totally but it's not something that they're doing it's just kind of something that's riding on them yeah and using them as part of its own life cycle it's not as like directly physical and tangible as like a snake <laughs> right yeah and snakes are have that the creepiness to them that's because it's almost like the ant thing to me in some ways it's like oh um i remember reading an article years ago in the new yorker about uh these spiders spider biologists someplace in kansas or some shit and they had an angry mob run them out of town because people hated because the, they had a huge collection of spiders in their house. And I don't know what the whole story was. I have to revisit this article. I think it was by that guy Burkhart Bilger. Hmm. You know that guy? He writes all this weird nature stuff. I don't I haven't read anything his, of his in a while, but really interesting stuff. But he, um, they were talking about this spider called the Loxoskelis lieta, which is the Brazilian brown recluse that somehow got established in Los Angeles in the 50s because of a Shakespeare troupe brought it over. Brought, their eggs were in their costumes when they came over. <laughs> and somehow they established a colony in the basement of the Goodwill on Broadway downtown. So he was writing about some scientists who was checking this out, how these, these less, I guess they're more toxic, but they're less aggressive, the Loxoskelis lieta. Or maybe I have it the other way around. I'm not really sure. But either way, how this Brazilian brown recluse was, um, you know, people are just deathly afraid of this thing and how he was talking about all these spider biologists, how much they are just stigmatized to the point where they're basically like these people who are, they are, I mean, people hate them. People hate spider biologists, but just because they hate spiders so much and how if you're an ant biologist, it's so much more uh, personable and like you're able to, there's something about it. It's, I find it really interesting that the, the relationship between humans and these animals and how they're so similar, but the how they're cast is so much different. Why, why do I feel like we may be unique as a country and that we would run spider biologists out of time? Yeah. Town, you know? I think it's probably a pretty special case. <laughs> and, you know, he might have been doing that whole Mark Twain thing where the, the truth is in there somewhere, you know, uh-huh. where it might be a little drummed up for effect or who knows may it may have changed over time where the story got became more and more um scandalous but i just think that's so interesting because i i it drives me crazy that people hate uh spiders and snakes as much as they do because it's just like you are you're just (laughs) you're hating something that is like evolutionarily perfect it could just if if spiders are if i always think about two ants i I remember one of those big tear I was trying to find the notes for this podcast, but I couldn't find them on my phone. But I remember sitting in a van ride. We're writing the set for something. I just kept writing all these little miniature poems about ants, just basically how, like, ants don't care. Ants are just, like, indestructible. It's so interesting to think about ants in terms of, like, um, where I think about spiders as sort of, like, maybe being, like, these um, intellectual rogues, where I think of ants as these... These things where there's um, there's nothing you can possibly do. There's nothing humans could ever do to significantly impact the amount of ants in the earth. Like they're just like they'll never. They're just there. They're indestructible, right? There's just so many ants, and they're just always working. They're all. They're never. They never stop. They never go to sleep. They will always lose. If ants were twice the size they are now, we would be 
overrun. We would be destroyed. There'd be nothing <laughs> left, right? They would just destroy us. I mean, ants are extremely good at what they do, and I think uh, their sort of soci- sociality mm-hmm. um, is what is part of what has made them just sort of like a a juggernaut. Yeah, that's the group. word, juggernaut. Um, but one thing that I think is fascinating is uh, if we look at uh, uh, an ant colony, right? It's often just somewhere like a. 10% or so of the colony, a, a somewhat small fraction of the colony that's out uh, actually working and doing stuff. And mm-hmm. if we were to open up the colony and look inside, we'd essentially see the majority of ants on the couch watching TV and eating Cheetos. Really? Uh-huh. That's interesting. So, um, I mean, if we, if we can uh, liken an ant colony to maybe a body, a single body, then those ants perhaps we can think of as kind of the... Uh, fat reserves for uh, in the event of some type of uh, calamity, oh, they can cool. be kind of mobilized uh, for some purpose. That makes sense because you have these animals that live in nature and so they're not, they're not living like us where they have these you know, we have all these luxuries of structures and all this stuff like that but they have to, they live in this way where they're always expecting famine or disease or war or something like that so they have to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Maybe we pause real quick here and we'll be right back here with Adam Lazarus on Live to Tape. I used to do uh, kids' science television. I had oh, a, wow. a, a kids' science show on uh, PBS and KCET called uh, Bug Bites. <laughs> That's such a great name. It was a it was a mixed media show um, where I was in the show. I played. I like to think an Indiana Jones style adventurer. Right. I think other people would say nerd. Um, and my roommate was an animated cockroach named Gilbert. Wow. And uh, every episode we uh, would have some sort of kind of science focus and mm-hmm. then human focus as well. And uh, we'd we'd have kids on for part of it, and we'd do a project together. It was great fun. That's not, is it. People, can people watch that? Is it available on PBS at all? So it is. As far as I know, it's no longer on air. Um, but probably on PBS, the website or like the app or something. It may be. It may be on somewhere there. If not, I'm certainly happy to share episodes. Cool. Uh, we ran into some trouble towards uh, the end of our shooting with the. Uh, some some disagreements with producers and stuff like that, um, which left uh, sort of the availability of the episodes kind of in limbo. That to me is that's a shame. Uh, that's that's yeah. It 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 actually was, and uh, I, I'm not I'm not bitter for real, mm-hmm. but uh, there was a time when I was uh, sad about it because it was a real boutique show. We put our heart and soul into yeah. it, and uh, we. It wasn't switching from live action to animation. It was literally oh, uh, I was with you. me and other people talking to animated characters and them fully interacting with the real world. So. Like a Blue's Clues scenario. Yes, though, if I'm not mistaken, do they sort of switch from animation to... I don't remember. I just remember there's a, there's a dog and there's a guy. <laughs> the dog is uh, animated and the guy is a guy. But, but in any case, yeah, similar to that. That's and, cool. Uh, I've actually just... Um, revived that 
type of thing with uh, the co-creator from Bug Bites, this oh, cool. awesome dude named Topher Putnam. We now do an online Zoom show mm -hmm. called The Buzz, where um, Topher plays an animated Lord Howe Island stick insect, which is one of the rarest animals on Earth. Is that one of those big-ass, long, it's like a walking stick type of thing? But it's a... Yes. Um, and uh, it was... Uh, a common species on Lord Howe Island off the coast of Australia. Wow. Um, so common that uh, fishermen, fisher people often used it as bait. Uh -huh. And uh, then in uh, the early 1900s, a merchant ship crashed and uh, these black rats escaped onto Ooh. the island and they ate all, all of, of them. them. Wow. And uh, the animal was thought to be extinct for around 80 years. Um, and then an expedition to a giant piece of rock jutting out of the ocean miles off the shore from Lord Howe Island, saw a cluster of melaleuca bushes growing out of the side of the rock. Right. Uh, and they went up and they, they scaled the rock and they went to the spot and they found the last 24 Lord Howe Island stick insects there. Have they started, uh, what do you call it, um, like put, put some of them in captivity to reproduce them? Or how do you, how's that work? Yes, that's exactly what uh, they did. Uh, their their first efforts weren't successful, but subsequent efforts were. And now um, that species has been brought back from the brink of extinction. Wow, that's so cool. That's, those kind of stories are great. I love hearing that kind of stuff. Me too. Yeah. It's so funny how devastating certain species can be when they're introduced. It's just like rats, man. Rats are just, man, they're, they're, like, they're like ants kind of. Or they're just, they're unstoppable. Well, they, they are like ants. And... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an, an example that's actually of ant that's really similar to rats is, I'm not seeing any around here right now, but... Well, can, can I guess? Sure. The Argentinian ant. Absolutely. Those things are fucking gnarly, man. The Argentinian ant, if you, can you explain those to listeners? Because I, I know what you're talking about, but uh, you should explain what those Argentinian ants are. Sure. So Also, um, just knock on wood, the fact that we don't have any here is just like, to me... Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're probably here. I just don't see them. Yeah. They're here. Yeah. They're here. Uh, luckily, they're not major pests of humans. Okay. They don't uh, degrade wood. They don't really come in and eat people's food. Um, usually, when they come into homes, it's for water. Oh. So, people will often see them in bathrooms or around pet water bowls. Right. Stuff like that. But th this is an ant that um, is uh, native to... Uh, Amazon river basins mm -hmm. in Argentina and perhaps elsewhere, but um, has been introduced throughout the world and seems to thrive in Mediterranean-like climates such as where we live, right. provided there's enough water. So um, uh, similarly to how rats kind of rely on humans to survive, right. the, the Argentine ant relies on us bringing in water uh, to... You know, a lot of L.A. Uh, would be a desert. Right. But we brought in so much water, and we have allowed species like the Argentine ant to survive. That's interesting. Yeah. Those, those are the little tiny black ones, right? They're, they're very, very small. Very, we have um, – I would say they're very small mm -hmm. because then there's another common ant also introduced around here that is very, very small. <laughs> what is that one? Um, that one is called uh, Monomorium. It's a uh, – there, there are a few species, but one of them is uh, called the pharaoh ant. 
oh. uh, Monomorium ferroensis, which is uh, another species that is introduced all around the world and cohabitates with people. But um, one of the things that makes the Argentine ant special is that uh, sometimes, and this seems to especially happen in areas where it has been introduced, um, it loses um, the chemical distinctions that different queens would impart to their young that distinguish them from other colonies of the species. Mm -hmm. And so the species has become largely unicolonial. Oh my God, that's so scary to think that. And uh, we have, we have, we may have a few more, but we essentially have two colonies of Argentine ants here in California. Really? Yep, just two. And that's I could insane. take Argentine ants from my house, uh, take a handful of them, and throw them into a pile of Argentine ants at your house, and uh, they would immediately integrate and act like they were just part of that colony because it is one continuum. And in fact, the larger of the two colonies, its main uh, body is on the European coast, primarily in Spain of the Mediterranean, and then it also extends to Japan as well. So we're talking colony? about a, a single colony called the super colony, <laughs> which is thousands of miles long. Oh, my long. God. That's so crazy. <laughs> that's insane. So they're all the same. They're like, they're like aliens. It's like the Borg from Star Trek. It's those, uh, remember the, you know the Borg from Star Trek? I, certainly. It's like that's that, uh, if you don't know, listeners, the Borg is that race of uh, people in Star Trek that are like, they're basically all the same, and they only they only have a number like seven of nine. Or I guess the Borg were even more distinct than these than the, uh, those colony of Argentinian ants or whatever. They might it's, be. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Though, though it's interesting. An another similarity that uh, ants have with the Borg. A, a lot of times when we think of ants and um, what makes ants successful, which is their cooperation, mm -hmm. we we tend to think that. Uh, Ants kind of lose their individuality right. in the process of doing that. And I would argue that that's not the case in a, in a lot of ways, though. For one, um, we, when ants sort of are in a society, and they're in this kind of colonial society, they seem to do better than individual insects in really quantifiable ways. They get more food, they do less work on average, they, they pass on more genes. Uh -huh. And so I, I think that a very reasonable case could be made that um, their seeming selflessness uh, may be sort of the ultimate expression of selfishness. That's interesting because, yeah, I see what you're saying there. So the fact that they live in these sort of like, you know, communes of sorts, is because they're selfishly wanting to preserve, like, a, like a, they want to have a higher lifestyle, right? Like a less uh, threat, a less threatened lifestyle with more, with more food, more everything. And if we, so Argentine ants are um, interesting in their unicolonialism because they uh, lose their ability to distinguish. Um, be daughters from different mothers, and mm -hmm. so they, the colonies kind of fuse together. Um, but if we put those to the side and we look at other ants uh, that don't do this thing where colonies fuse together into larger and lar larger colonies, the ants that do the best 
in, again, of all the different strategies. There are slave-making ants. There are ants that uh, are stealing uh, food from other ants. There are ants that are engaged in all these competitions. But the ants that do the best are the types of ants where the colony acts the most like a single organism. But wow. within that framework, there is the greatest amount of individuality from one ant to the next. So a lot of people think, and I'm not advocating that we should be like ants, yeah. but a lot of people say that one reason why we shouldn't be like ants is because we lose our individuality. Right. Um, and that's actually not true. If we analogize an ant colony to more like the cells in a body, right. where there's a tremendous amount of differentiation, I, th I think we're, we're at a more accurate analogy. And so if we look at the ants who have the, the largest colonies, for example, um, th those would fall into two categories. There are the uh, driver ants um, or the army ants. These driver ants is what we tend to refer to ants that engage in this army ant type of behavior. Which is like moving around or something? What it means it makes an army ant an army ant? So army ants um, and uh, driver ants, they um, move around. They, they don't have permanent nests. Oh, cool. They will go through uh, bivouacking periods, it's called, where they'll construct temporary nests, Right. often by linking their bodies together. So they'll have uh, a nest built with chambers and tunnels and everything that's made almost completely out of living ants Jesus linked together. Um, <laughs> and and dur during this time, the queen will swell up. She'll sort of lose her ability to be extremely mobile. Um, a monarch going over there. I think it's a monarch. That's a giant swallowtail right oh. there. Oh, God. I've never seen a giant swallowtail. I've seen swallowtails in here, but not giant swallowtails. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. butterfly. Um, so you're but the queen will swell up. The queen will swell up, and she'll lay eggs. And while she's in this swollen egg-laying phase, the colony will uh, be in, uh, it's called the bivouacking or the stattery phase. And uh, during this time, they um, have a central location. I let the queen lay her eggs in the sort of arms or pseudopods of ants go out continually to look for food. Then they come back. And uh, these ants tend to be very protein-focused ants. Mm -hmm. So uh, some specialize in preying on the young of other types of ants, bees and wasps. Others just uh, try to overwhelm any source of, source of protein they can find. And they'll feed these eggs that hatch into larvae. They'll feed these sort of ravenous larvae. And then the queen will shrink back up She's able to run again, and uh, the colony's uh, larvae will have developed to a stage where they're kind of easy to carry as the wow. colony moves around, and the colony will move back to its uh, nomadic phase. It's almost like a herd of buffalo, except with the obvious thing where there's no queen buffalo, but that's funny. But And one thing that's interesting is that um, a lot of these studies have uh, indicated that these types of ants have actually locked themselves into a nomadic lifestyle because their colonies are so big and they're so ravenous that they seem to quite literally eat all the available food. Wow. And so they're sort of forced to move on periodically to go to places where there is new food again. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus. And within, within these types of ants, we have um, huge diversity of cast sizes and cast shapes, so mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of, of individuality based on just appearance alone. And then uh, many ants also change jobs throughout their lifetimes. Wow. And start off when they're young doing kind of the, the
the cushiest, easiest jobs like taking care of the queen and mm -hmm. the young, and then uh, graduating to more difficult and dangerous jobs like looking for food and ultimately defending the nest. Wow, that's crazy. So what are the types of ants that, are, that fall that fall into that category? That's like, uh, you say army ants and driver ants? Are those like, do we have any of those ants in like Southern California or in the, in the United States? Yes, we do. Um, we have a number of different species of army ants mm -hmm. in the United States. And uh, some of them seem to be largely subterranean okay. and are going around in underground tunnels. I've never seen any here in California. Wow. That yeah. doesn't mean that they're not here. I've seen some in Arizona. I think I saw some in Kansas once. Um, we get some uh, in Texas. So there are some that are around. Uh, some of them are really neat. If, have you ever heard of uh, ants being used as sutures? Yeah, I have heard a little bit about that. Yeah, because they lock their mandibles right, and then you just... Uh, what type of ant is that that's used for that? So the type of ant that... Uh, is used for that, to my knowledge, is this genus of army ant called Eciton, E-C-I-T-O-N. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a type of army ant that often specializes on uh, raiding other ant and wasps nests and eating their brood. So it's an ant sort of built for combat and built to uh, deal with ants that are very much trying to protect their resources. Mm -hmm. But the, the majors, uh, the soldiers of these ant, which perhaps more, more technically would be called a major worker. The biggest majors have these mandibles that look kind of like mammoth tusks. These wow. long uh, sickle-shaped mandibles that end in these uh, sharp hooks or points. Mm -hmm. And uh, what these ants do um, when they're protecting the colony, which is often attacked by kind of large vertebrate predators, is they will bite uh, the vertebrate predator and start stinging it um, but the, the way the mandibles are shaped, the ant can't unbite. Okay. So it's kind of a, a suicidal uh, wow. defensive strategy. Wait, so it has a stinger in its abdomen? Yes. So it has the bite and the sting. So it's almost like a, like a bee. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, and uh, ants evolved specifically from the aculeate wasps. And aculeate means uh, having a stinger or a pointy, mm -hmm. stabby thing. Um, I would say many, if not most ants, have lost their stings. Okay. They've evolved into something else. But uh, many ants still possess a sting, including these ants. And um, they'll just latch on, sting or just bite, and uh, the animal will have a hard time getting it off. Wow, because they're just locked in there. That's crazy. They're locked. And so what uh, some indigenous people will do when they get a, a cut is they'll grab a major worker. Mm -hmm. The major gets angry and opens up its mandibles and they'll hold the skin of the cut together and then lock in a mandible on one side and then the other side of the skin uh -huh. twist off the body and do that a few times and have a line of ant heads that That's crazy. it's more tension uh that is holding the the skin together rather than the clamping adductor mandibles inside the head of the ant wow so if you've ever had like a have you ever had a sprain and wrapped that stretchy stuff around it. Yeah. And then there's that metal clip that you hook into one part right. and stretch that material, hook it into another part. And it's the act of the material trying to pull itself apart mm -hmm. that holds the clip in place. Right. It's that type of uh, physical situation that is holding the wow. ant heads in place. That's so weird. 
It's so weird. And they also probably dissolve, like a, they dissolve over time, so it dissolves at the same speed the wound would heal. I wonder. I mean, the uh, chitin. Um, that's the protein? That's like the, their shell? That's their shell. Okay. It's kind of a, a carbohydrate structure that is right. pretty similar, similar to uh, cellulose, which okay. is what is what wood is made out of. Right. Um, takes a long, long time to dissolve, mm-hmm. uh, but it, but it has all these great properties. It's not it's not that good at growing bacteria, for mm-hmm. example. So they now make uh, some bandages out of chitin. Wow. Um, and ants themselves are extremely resistant to disease. Uh, many ants have this hole in the side of the body called a metapleural gland, right. which constantly oozes this broad spectrum microbicide that they lick to spread all over one another, spread on the young. Um, that's, that's, that's disgusting, <laughs> but it's also so cool. Right, right, it works. I mean, we have antibiotics that can lose their functionality in an extremely short time as mm-hmm. bacteria uh, evolve resistance to it, which can happen in a depressingly short amount of time. Yeah. Ants have been around for, uh, we now, now evidence suggests, well over 100 million years. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been amazingly great at uh, resisting disease for that time. So ants aren't that old, are they? Um, in terms of like planetary, they're not, they're, are they a newer species in terms of insects? They're not that old. Um, That's weird. I didn't know that. You'd think they would because there's so many of them. Well, ants belong to um, an interesting group of insects. So we talked about earlier how ants undergo complete metamorphosis. Right. Well, that is considered like a huge evolutionary advantage in the insects. Mm-hmm. Um, and it only happened to a, a certain group of, of insects. So flies, butterflies, ants, beetles, all of these have a distinct larval stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, we think that might have been um, such a huge advantage because in general it takes away the competition from the larvae and the adults. Okay. If you, t- if you take something like a, a termite or a cockroach where the babies are just a smaller version of the adult, that means that they're all eating the same food yeah. and are sometimes in a situation where they're competing against one another for the same food. So but cockroaches are much older. Much older. And, and so termites are in the same family as a roach? Uh, that's correct. Um, not same family, but... Same and maybe not something. even the same order. I'm not positive about that, but we, it appears when we look at the genetics that uh, termites are sort of a highly evolved, highly socialized wood-eating cockroach. See, I thought the termites were more like ants. I was going to ask you that because, you know, termites have that similar thing where they're, some, not, they're not all winged, and they don't they, they uh, have that thing where they get wings at a certain point in time to reproduce or something like that, like they swarm so I, was, I always figured the termites were a type of ant, but they're not, huh? They're much more primitive than ants? Much more primitive than ants. Wow. Uh, seems to be a case of uh, convergent evolution. Wow. Where um, a strategy is successful enough that it uh, pops up multiple times. Um, and some of the differences between uh, ants and termites are that uh, termites have male and female workers. Right. Uh, often... The workers of termites are, are not sterile, which means that even when the king, founding king and queen termite die, the colony can 
continue more or less indefinitely because other workers will uh, grow to become secondary reproductives and keep the colony going. So are bees then even newer than ants, or are they older than ants, you think? That's a great question. Um, I don't know the answer. Got it. I don't know the answer. Um, I think that ants are older than bees. Oh, wow. Okay. But I'm not 100% sure. Both of them seemed to experience kind of an explosion of species diversity around the time that flowering plants uh, started to experience their own explosion and that's, of diversity. Those are angiosperms, flowering plants? Correct. Got it. Okay. Because gymnosperms are like a pine tree, right? Like a conifer is a gymnosperm? Yes. And those are older, right? Those are much older than angiosperms? Yes. Got it. Okay. That's so interesting. Man, that's so crazy to answer because everything you're saying about ants, they seem like they'd be super primitive because of the way they work, but it's actually the opposite. That's so funny. We, you know, um, there, there are some really interesting ants that uh, act in very primitive ways. Mm -hmm. And primitive is, is sort of a loaded term. Right. But... Uh, in science, at least, we, when we think about uh, primitive, we think about kind of the either they're acting in a manner that is uh, similar to the precursor lifestyles to eusociality. Like unchanged. Right, like unchanged. Or they're primitive in uh, their morphology. So they really closely resemble uh, the wasps from which they evolved. Okay, so wasps are the oldest... In terms of those type of insects? Right. Wasps are the oldest in terms of those types of insects. There are many, many wasps. Um, there's even a group, perhaps older than wasps, called sawflies. But they, they look like wasps. All right. Um, they act like uh, a lot of the wasps. But uh, many wasps and uh, their, their sawfly relatives are characterized by having an egg-laying tube mm -hmm. that is pushed into something. Well, what was that? Those are two dragonflies. Beautiful dragonflies. Those were the orange ones, those super bright orange ones. So cool. That's, you've I've, got a, I've seen them here a couple times. Really? Yeah. That's neat. That means you have water somewhere nearby. I wonder. That's interesting because my neighbor has a pond, a little oh. pond that it's pretty, pretty nasty. Hmm. I secretly, about once every few months, throw a mosquito puck in there because it's like <laughs> mosquitoes are already bad enough here. And there's probably someone else who has something that I can't see around here. But they, uh, that's, that's crazy that they would – they can probably live in that water even though there's the mosquito. Because it's one of those, like, organic ones. It's, it it's like some type of bacteria that kill the mosquitoes. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Dra dragonfly young, which are called nymphs, mm -hmm. uh, have gills and live underwater. Wow. And they're voracious predators. They have uh, this stabbing, grabbing mouth part that is folded up and almost on like a spring release below the head. Wow. And when they find it's it's worth it checking out some of these on YouTube if you can find a video of it. When they find prey that looks interesting to them, this mouth part flashes out at a fraction of a second and impales the victim and brings it towards the mouth, and then they start eating it. Jeez, that's crazy. It's like a weapon. It's awesome. That's interesting. Wow. So you're talking about these wasps. These wasps have a thing, like these paper wasps that I have up in there, you can see on the eve of the garage there. <gasps> so those have been there for probably about, you know, since early spring. But I haven't taken them down because they've been, they're so docile. I've never had one, like, 
I've never had any, any interaction with them. All I do is see them crawling all over my plants, and I don't have any bugs on the plants. There's no aphids or anything. There's probably some stuff, right? But there's one. You can see one right there on the okra plant right there. It's hovering around there, mm-hmm. and I think it's eating. They're, they're just, they eat the shit out of everything on these plants. That's right. So um, first off, I love that you noticed that they're docile. Um, in general, paper wasps are docile mm-hmm. and will com- have no interest in, in attacking people. Yeah. But have a huge interest. Most of them are caterpillar specialists. Yeah, I, I have a video of one. I found one eating a, eating a, uh, a green caterpillar. It pulled off of my squash plant over there. I saw it fall. I heard this thing fall on the ground. I look over, <laughs> and it's this wasp just going to town on this little green bulbous thing. I'm like, what is that? Oh, it's, it's a caterpillar. It's eating it alive. They eat it alive. They, uh, they're, they're completely unceremonious mm-hmm. um, and sort of unflinching. They'll find a caterpillar, bite a chunk out of the living caterpillar, and fly away, give it to the young, and then come back to the slowly, seriously injured, slowly dying caterpillar yeah. and keep on taking chunks out of it till the caterpillar is no more. I have no qualms about them killing the caterpillars. Those things just, they can destroy your garden so fast. They can. Yeah, and they get so big so fast, too. They Those do. Those are usually the lace wings, right? Is that what they are? The little white butterflies? Lace wings, actually, you also actually, want in your thing. garden. Yeah, I was getting confused. I'm thinking of what it's the little white... Uh, butterfly moth looking thing I, evidently so, someone told me those are the ones that are typically come from the caterpillars that are undesirable in your garden so those white butterflies are probably cabbage white butterflies there you go cabbage white yeah not lacewing and those love things like uh, kales lettuces cabbages yeah. they love those things mm-hmm. I believe they're an import from the UK actually oh really a non-native species one of the reasons why I'm so interested in your paper wasps, actually, is because it looks like they are a native species. Really? Um, yeah, and wow. perhaps more common to find around here, you'll see this uh, paper wasp. It's called uh, Polistes dominula, mm-hmm. which is yellow and black striped. Right. And has sort of a standard wasp or, or you know, wasp, like dangerous wasp pattern to right. it. Right. And um, it goes after caterpillars, but unlike many other uh, species of polistes, which is a paper wasp genus. They also eat lots of other arthropods. They're not just focused on caterpillars. Okay. Native ones tend to be just focused on caterpillars. But they often get bullied away by the introduced European paper wasps. So okay. if those are native, which I can't wait to shove my face in there and take a look, Yeah. Um, that, that'll just be really exciting to me. I wonder, yeah. I mean, because they... They seem really comfortable, and they just go to town, and they're all over the place, and they're just just—they're very active, but they never get in my face at all. And I've never – I mean, I was really close to getting rid of it, but I'm like, you know what? I just think they – because I remember reading a while ago, like, oh, the wasps are – I'm pretty sure they're predators to harmful insects in the garden. And I was kind of like waiting to get stung or something like that, but I haven't had even just the slightest bit of like – the thing that freaks people out the most, at least my wife gets freaked out by, is like those big, those big scare beetles. They go, they have, they're so loud. And they when they come close to you. It's like, whoa, what the fuck is that? Sounds like a, they're so big. But those things, obviously, you know, they're just so cool. I, I would never want to get rid of those. I just love those things. They're so beautiful. Yeah. The green fig beetle is yeah. the common one. Is it like an iridescent, beautiful iridescent green? Iridescent green. I had someone tell me that it's called the California scarab, but is that a different thing? Well. 
names are hard enough to come by when we're using scientific terminology. Okay, let alone common. Co common is, you can call it anything you want, mm -hmm. and you'll essentially be right. You can decide that these are the, you know, name of your street beetle, and yeah, that's fine. As long okay. as people know what you're talking about. So what is that iridescent green beetle then that flies around and it's like, you know, it kind of flies, it moves around a bunch. It's not very, it seems kind of ungainly, like it's like a big old donkey in the sky, you know? Mm -hmm. What is it? What's the scientific name for that? The scientific name for that, ugh, I was just telling someone about this. Uh, I can look it up, but it's, it's escaping me at okay. the moment. It's Okay. <laughs> but re really neat beetle. Um, the, the adult drinks nectar from flowers. Okay. And uh, the grub, which lives underground, uh, is kind of neat because if you take one of these grubs and put it on a flat surface, it will roll onto its back with its tiny legs in the air and move along using sort of a peristaltic motion with wow. its legs up. So it's crawling upside down. That's funny. I definitely find a lot of grubs in my garden. I try to get rid of them because... Predators, not predators, but like, you know, scavengers like a raccoon or a possum or even rats, I think, they come in there. And they, I had, used to have a garden the old place we used to live at. It got destroyed. It got absolutely destroyed one night because of a couple raccoons going there. And they dig up all the goddamn plants. So they ignore all the plants. They're just digging for these grubs. And I guess it, someone told me years ago that if you have too much organic matter in your soil, it those grubs want to live there, so you have to introduce like a lot of like minerals and stuff to help. I mean, which is better for the plants, anyways. But it helps. Um, it makes it so it's not such a breeding ground for these grubs. Because, I mean, the garden. It's one of the most frustrating things because it, at least with insects, they're eating the plant. But with the with the raccoons, they just rip everything out of the ground to get to the grubs. And <laughs> just like it's like a person just came in here, like a drunk guy just came through with a trowel and just like <laughs> disturbed everything. And I've been so lucky that I haven't had a big problem with that. Um, yeah, I've been so I've been trying to like I try to like anytime I see them, sometimes I'll just rake up everything. If I see them, I just throw them up on the roof for like a crow or a bird to eat, you know, or I'll throw them in the back in the back corner of the yard or some shit like that because yeah, I just don't want some forager coming through there ripping up my garden to get to these grubs. But I, I think get, those are the I scarab it, grubs, aren't they? Probably. The, so um, if they're in a C shape. Yep, C shape. Then they're actually not the grub. Okay. Of, I think it might be called, our green fig beetle is called something like Cotinus mubilis. Okay. Something like that. I think I'm getting that right. Um, that beetle has more of an elongate type of grub. Got it. But uh, those C shapes can be from, from other scarabs. Uh, June bugs okay. have a C-shaped grub, for example. And uh, around this time of year, we're getting a lot of the 10-lined June bug. I like the June bugs. Me too. They're fun. They're adorable. I like the hooks on their hands. Me too. That thing to me, I remember I, I getting freaked out as a kid because you get it on, you can't get it off. And it's like, it can't get off either. So it's like this thing where you're both scared. <laughs> but there's something about seeing those those things. I just remember as a kid, those little hooks, and they would hook into your skin sometimes. Some people get super freaked out by it. Or they can hook on like a screen door. They're just like such a such an interesting thing. You, I've never seen anything like that in the insect world. These little, it's like they're little, little climbing hooks kind of thing. It's so Th interesting. That's exactly what they are. Those hooks, uh, one of those hooks is called a tarsus. A tarsus, okay. T-A-R-S-U-S is that hook thing at the tarsus. foot of a beetle. Wow. Isn't that also, well, because tarsus, isn't that, that's a, uh, 
we call our foot bones tars. I think tarsus is something like in Greek or Latin it has to do with foot because your foot bones are called metatarsals. Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the case. I think because uh, well, because fingers are phalange, mm-hmm. and I think foot is t- tarsal, so oh, it must have yeah. some. You know, who knows what it is? I'm sure it has some sort of. Uh, I just know this stuff from like, you know, growing up around so many doctors, where I just remember all the, all the uh, Latin names for, for um, the bones and stuff. I'm sure I don't I don't know all of them, but I know that some of so many of them are just like, real, uh, kind of what do you call it, blunt or coarse descriptions of the thing like oh that means outside <laughs> it's like oh, what's what's fibia mean oh it means outside you know it's something like mm-hmm. where like what's between a tibia and fibia it's probably some dumb shit like that or like you know <laughs> like pronation versus supination all that kind of stuff is all it's all like such such boring explanations for the thing that sounds so fancy so uh, you know you you clearly know a lot about science and and have had a lot of fun with it what I'm, where's your background and why are you so interested in science i mean i i like just like all a lot of science really but to me biology is the most interesting just because there's something about animals especially when you see them in the wild when i say animals i mean like insects too Mm -hmm. when you see them they're just like so i don't know what it is about they're just something about to watch them undisturbed is so fascinating because it's like this it's like this thing where I mean, I really do think about them like aliens, where it's just same. They behave in a way where, I mean, I love alien movies. I love all that sci-fi stuff. <laughs> same. But all these people who are thinking of these things, they're not looking toward the sky. They're looking toward the ground to find this stuff. And you look at some of these things in the microscope, and they're just so they're so truly bizarre and terrifying. Like I saw that video you posted of that scorpion. With that fucking those mandibles that come out like a like one and two punch like they hand over hand devouring this devouring that cricket. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that before, and it looks like that's like a machine. It's not really a. It's a biological machine, and I guess to me a lot of times I think about. Well, if you think about a plant like a vegetable, it's essentially a three D printer. It's this thing it's producing. Sometimes I have these cucumbers that are just hiding in there. I'm like, how did it make that? Or I check my squash plant, and it's in 24 hours, it's produced something that is three times the size it was previously. And I'm like, how is this possible? You look at like these, look at like insects, and like the idea that we differentiate between like a drone, like a little drone that's like the size of a, like a size of a coffee cup, or and differentiate that that between like something like a, a lo- the large flying insect. At some point in time, I feel like they'll they'll be indistinguishable because you can only make something. You can only make a uh, a like a a computer or like a a mechanical item so small because of the limits of silicon. Mm-hmm. And I, I I always think that uh, at some point in time we'll figure out how to control biology because it's going to be easier to control a biological thing that exists than it will be to make a mechanical version of that. Like, if we want to, if you want, the whole idea of nanobots to me is absurd because wouldn't it be easier to find a way 
to control bacteria, to tell back, to give bacteria instructions instead of creating like a fucking microscopic computer. It's not even possible. Like that guy Michio Kaku talked about that. He's that that physicist from the, I think it's New York State College talked about how, essentially, the future of space will not be um, technological. It will be biologically driven because there's certain things that just are not possible to construct physically, and how there's always biological things that do uh, allow for that. And so, if you could control biology, that would be just be. I mean, you. It would be this insane power that you could do that would be, I mean, it would be so disruptive. It would be, it would be you would you'd be, you can't even describe it, how disruptive it would be. If you were able to control, if you were able to control like a thousand spiders, I mean, that would be insane. The things you could do with that, or the thing if you could control any type of flying insect to gather data or doing like that, it would be asked... I mean, to me, it's just like to think about that. It's like it's just crazy. It makes your brain like sweat. The idea of it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I love right. that stuff. Like for example, the the dragonflies who just flew by us. Right. They can see in, they they have thousands of uh, facets on their compound eyes. Right. Uh, called omatidia, and they're able to see in almost 360 degrees. <laughs> these are these are animals that can hover, fly forwards and backwards and hunt on the wing. Right. Um, and just the idea of all that processing power happening that fast. Yeah. It, it's really interesting what you say because I feel that we're asymptoting towards Wait, living computers. Asymptoting? I've never heard that word before. Uh, an asymptote is um, when you have a, a curved line that is approaching another flat line but never actually reaches it just gets closer and closer oh, and closer okay. to it without actually hitting it. Yeah. Um, so we're, I feel like we're slowly getting to the point where we're switching to things like DNA computing and biological machines. And I wonder if in some ways we are inventing essentially ourselves. Yeah. That, that uh, all silicone-based computing is just one step toward another life form that is based kind of on us or at least on uh, our abilities it has to be i always think about that in terms of like the whole idea of um of uh ai being dangerous i just don't believe it i don't buy it really because it, we made ai like we made this thing and it's based on us so I'll, i think it, it'll only be better it won't be more destructive it'll be the opposite it'll be kinder than we are and i think the same way with like if you're creating like a something that's bio, biological, it has to exist uh, within some type of rules in order in order to stay alive. And so, it can't be like it can't be total war. It can't be this thing that that's set to destroy everything. Otherwise, it won't survive itself. So, like the yeah, it doesn't make sense that we'd be like creating like a new version of ourselves. I and mean, who knows? Maybe that's like the whole idea of the of the simulation or any any type of thing like that where. We're just right now in this one stage where it's, things will just keep repeating, but we have no awareness that that's what's happening because by the time we get to the point where the thing replicates, the thing that's been replicated has lives in such a different space that it can't comprehend. Both things cannot even comprehend the existence of the other because of their very nature. So it's this thing where 
it's like we we don't know what we don't know kind of thing. Right. Like we've created something where we can't understand the thing that the thing that we've created can't understand that it's that it's been created itself. <laughs> it's kind of like an like a great irony that we'll never we'll never understand. It, it's it's really a wonderful thing. Um, that's uh, actually part of the reasons why I love ants too. Is that because it seems that somehow intelligence or sentience is linked to complexity, and yeah. um, an ant, for example may not be all that smart, but colonies can make uh, smart decisions and smart determinations and really kind of respond right. to their environment. So it's that aggregate of all these micro decisions, which isn't that different from, say, the, the neurons in a brain where a single synaptic firing can be all but meaningless, but together their imagination, perhaps our greatest power. Totally, yeah. It's also that thing where you think about, remember when I first learned about how the body is just loaded down with bacteria and fungus like we're just we're not just this thing we're just filled with all these things that are technically foreign but at what point at what point is something foreign if it's always there like doesn't that sort of make it the same thing like it's like that it's really hard to draw distinctions at some point between what is the thing and what is the other that that's absolutely true we couldn't exist without those microbes and so mm -hmm. how can we call them non-human yeah. in a way. It's really, it's so spooky. It's also that thing where it always gets me when people are skeezed out or they hate something that's biological. And it's like, you're, you're fucking covered in this stuff. You're, you're absolutely covered. You're dripping. There's a lot of people who are very, um, very aware of like, like fungus and uh, molds being, like they're super scared of it. It's like, you are, Absolutely. We're covered in head to toe with spores at all times. You just can't get rid of it. It's not possible. You would, you would have to kill yourself to get rid of it. And even then, a different thing would take over. Like, especially right now with, with so much emphasis on, um, like, cleanliness and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like the kind of thing where we're basically, all you can do is your best. All you can do is just try to, like, sort of... Um, eliminate the chances you can make it like less possible for something to happen but in actuality there's just there's nothing there's no way to truly eliminate biological interaction it's just impossible unless you have like a completely sealed environment in which case it's like you know you're just you're dead yeah and you know truly eliminating biological interaction would be terrible for us yeah part of our strength comes from the, the fact that we're, in many senses, a colonial organism. Right. It's just so interesting because there's, there's, there's no real, we, we still just know so little in terms of all that stuff that it's like, it's, I, I think the whole, the whole thing with all the COVID stuff is so frustrating because it's just like you can't really, it creates this, I don't know, a situation where you have to consider so many things to where we're just not really designed to consider that stuff for that well because it's, it's overwhelming. It is, though, though I feel like we've been particularly overwhelmed by it. Right. I, I feel like uh, there are a lot of places that have gotten a better handle on it because they seems seems like they left politics and superstition out of the mix. <laughs> oh, yeah, you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty, like Vietnam. I remember reading about them a few weeks ago and just being so pissed off because I'm like, God, they just fucking did it so well. 
all because they just all acted well, I mean, I guess going back to ants here now, this is exactly what we're talking about from the very beginning, is the Vietnam, the country Vietnam has basically acted like a single colony as opposed to like multiple colonies. Because everyone did the same thing. They all agreed to do the same protocol. And you also think about, like I think about like, um, this is kind of like mix, mixing politics with biology a bit, but it's like, you know, in the Vietnam War, the reason we lost is because Everything that I mean, I say we. It's not like I was at war. I mean, the reason the United States was was forced to leave there is because everything they did to the Vietnamese people wasn't effective. Like you'd bomb the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and they would rebuild it in like hours. It's like this thing where I used to think I think about that like with um like a fire ant nest. Like you can kick over a fire ant nest, but the fire ants don't really give a shit. They're gonna just gonna rebuild it like like that, right? Like, mm-hmm. So it's that same thing where it's just like you think about the country of Vietnam. They're functioning on they're functioning on such a uh, like a um, I don't know what you call that like a interdependent or they're working together in such a way that it's, you can't. It's really hard to destroy something that's working together that that seamlessly. And you know that said, I do kind of like the spirit of individuality mm-hmm. that we have in this country. Totally. And, I think that's a really important part, but I feel like it doesn't have to be sort of unmarried and unmoored from sensibility. But then again, maybe that's just my own biases coming through and other people think sensibility is something far, right. far different from what I do. But it's like we were saying at the very beginning how ants, they are in this colony, but that there is like the individually individuality inside of that. It just it seems to us like it's not the case when actually it's it's totally there. And they get all these benefits from that, even though it seems like it's like this the opposite, where they're just all the same. Like they're not all the same, and they're allowed to be individuals because of their, excuse me, their ability to work together. It affords them the ability to have the individuality, as opposed to the opposite, where it's like all these rugged individuals are destroying <laughs> the ability to be a rugged individual because you're so dead set on your individuality that you're destroying the very thing that allows you to be that. <laughs> God, that's so fucking heady and deep and kind of absurd and ironic at the same time. Do, do you think it's a? Do you, do you think it's um, some sort of fundamental flaw in how we educate people? Do you think some people are raised? Um, again, I feel like my own biases may be coming through, but do you think some people are kind of raised with a certain type of education that? doesn't sort of allow for critical thought or open-mindedness? Or I wonder. I mean, sometimes I think about the whole thing where, um, like, the United States... I remember seeing some documentary years ago about how how much the United States changed after World War II hmm. because we got to be involved in a war that we didn't suffer any losses, but we're on the winning side. We suffered some losses, but, like, disproportionately less than anyone else involved because right. we were isolated physically from the the combat theater and also because of that we were able to negotiate all these all the treasures of war like we the united states the amount of gold that if you look at a uh, scale how much gold you know america had in in relation to europe all these european countries um and other other countries involved in the war from <laughs> before that Afterwards, it was like a 
like a direct flip. So we became this massively wealthy country right after World War II, but we didn't suffer any of the losses that the countries did. So it's essentially we just became like these fat cats, and everyone became fat, like like the, uh, all this opulence. And I think maybe that all the opulence of that period of time bred like complacency, and then you have like the offshoots of that now being felt in terms of like how people live and um, educate themselves because there's like this false sense of accomplishment when really it's b- happened because of our physical isolation during a period of time in which we were able to gain a shitload of money and uh, land. I, I really think that um, I totally agree. And, right. and I think that uh, we can afford to have a lot of our sort of, you know, rugged individuality. Right. We can afford to have, through no accomplishment of our own, but because we are fortunate enough to be on a huge piece of land mm-hmm. with abundant resources that is kind of <laughs> geographically isolated from other places. Totally, yeah. So, so we had a lot going for us already. Like an accident. Yeah. Man, I feel like that chainsaw almost started at the perfect time. It's a little <laughs> bit sooner than I would have liked, but... I think they're going to be chain. I have a feeling they're going to be chainsawing more. Usually, it's never just one chainsaw. It's always <laughs> like a bunch right. of. Usually, a good twenty minutes of chainsawing, if there's chainsawing at all. Maybe I, not. I, who knows? But, I, um, I have a neighbor who I think is having a love affair with his leaf blower. Oh, secretly. I do too. I think it's yeah. the same. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I think a lot of people are going nuts right now because it's like they're just stuck in their little cages, and so all they can do is constantly clean it, and that <laughs> means like blowing shit around. It's yeah. Well, I feel like we should probably wrap up in this case. I want to. Uh, I think it's more of an adjour- adjournment because same. There's so much more to talk about, but um, obviously this is a good part one for sure. It's a great part one. It's been so much fun speaking with you, Johnny, and totally. I'd be delighted to do so again sometime. Yeah, I can't wait. I want, we'll talk about some of these ants here uh, off off uh, <laughs> off mic, I guess, and I'll show you the paper wasps. Is there a best place for people to find all your stuff? Um, working on that right now. I'd say if there were two <laughs> places to uh, find stuff, uh, my Instagram, I post a decent amount of things. It's called... Laz Laboratories. Okay, one L-A-Z. L-A-Z. Laboratories. Laboratories um, at Instagram. And then uh, the the new show that I'm working on, kind of the new integration of tech in this kind of online learning environment, might be uh, www.thebuzzscience.com. Cool, thebuzzscience.com. Yes. That sounds good. Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. Right on. Stopping down.